0: Welcome to Changemaking Women, the podcast for women who make a difference. With Siada Baid in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and Marianne Clements in London, in the UK. So hi, and welcome to Changemaking Women. Marianne. Hi, Marianne. Hi. Um, so I'm Marianne Clements, and I welcome my guest today, who is Ilana Landsberg lewis who is the Executive Director and Co-Founder of the Stephen Lewis Foundation, which is based in Canada, but I know works in lots of other places. So we might hear a bit about that this evening. And also the host of a um, podcast that's coming soon, which is called Grandmothers on the Move, which is really exciting to me. So I hope we're going to hear a little bit more about that this evening as well. So welcome, Ilana. Um, yard is going to join us in a moment actually so, um, so but we're going to get started now sure. so tell us a bit about yourself and who you are and also where you are in the world talking to us today.
1: Sure well today I'm in my in my home in Toronto Canada and uh, I've been living here for the last 15 years and previous to that Uh, I was working at the United Nations at UNIFEM, the United Nations Development Fund for Women, which has now become UN Women. And I was the CEDAW advisor. Mm -hmm. Uh, CEDAW is the Women's Convention, the convention to eliminate all forms of discrimination against women. And that uh, quite wonderful work took me uh, all over the developing world, primarily in Africa, South Asia, and Central America Ooh. to work with women's rights activists in any manner that they found useful to them. Um, and I've spent most of my life working on the rights of women and girls. And my current work is with the Stephen Lewis Foundation, which I founded with Ooh. Stephen, who is my father. And we, uh, we exist solely to get funds directly into the hands of grassroots community-based indigenous organizations in sub-Saharan Africa in 15 countries mm-hmm. that are working on HIV and AIDS, predominantly, uh, of course, always with women at the center mm-hmm. of the pandemic.
0: And how did, just, just to know a little of the background to what Stephen Lewis does, how did, like, how did you come to found it? Did, did you decide together or what was, what was the... What? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. I've often wondered how I ended up here, <laughs> um, not because my family has personal wealth. We're we're not philanthropists. Uh, mm-hmm. We're democratic socialists, so we have uh, we have deficits, not not, right. not profit. <laughs> but um, well, actually, my my father was um, was the leader of the Labour Party in Ontario, the equivalent of the Labour Party, called the New Democratic Party, and then moved on. Uh, not a career diplomat, moved on to uh, become in, in a strange twist of political weirdness with the Tory government, became um, the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations and then deputy director at UNICEF. All of this to say that he was appointed by Kofi Annan in the early 2000s as the first special envoy on HIV and AIDS in Africa. Okay. And he spent the next few years traveling around the continent, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, where AIDS had hit hardest and really was bearing witness to, at that time, the ravages of AIDS Mm -hmm. and carnage on the continent. And the fact that the international community was moving so uh, slowly, uh, almost delinquent in its response and how many lives were being lost as a result. Mm -hmm. And he was so distressed by it. I was working at UNIFEM at the time, and I was just beginning to see whispers of it in my own work, where I was working on women's rights, women's development. But certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, the pandemic was compromising all of that work and women's lives in, in profound ways, of course. And my father came to me and said, it's just not enough. Uh, uh, it's, it's an apocalypse and mm-hmm. we've got to do more. And so we decided together that we would start a foundation and we had very modest uh, ambitions at the time we thought we'd raise a couple of hundred thousand dollars if we were lucky Nine mm-hmm. uh, of us were fundraisers and uh, raise it from canadians who cared about what was happening and raise the alarm bell about what was happening and how the world was letting it standing by and letting it happen but surprisingly and the response was just overwhelming and millions uh, over the years supporting to the foundation. And 15 years later, we've supported over 300 community based community run organizations in 15 countries and sent hundred million dollars over, which is just a shocking amount to all of it from uh, individuals and from the union movement in Canada and also in some family foundations, but also remarkably, from this Grandmothers to Grandmothers campaign that we Mm -hmm. launched in 2006, really, uh, where we became aware, uh, I became aware through some of the things that, that Stephen was saying to me when he was returning from the continent, that every time he went to an orphan care project or an orphan feeding project, there would be a group of grandmothers sitting under a tree outside uh, supporting one another and at the same time i was hearing from community organizations on the continent talking about caregivers talking about parenting workshops and i just picked up the phone and called them up and we asked them are you talking about grandmothers and when and when we asked they said of course we're talking about grandmothers they're the ones who have inherited the burden of care having buried some to all of their adult children, having lost them to AIDS. They've inherited the burden of care to raise their orphaned grandchildren. And when I asked them, well, why didn't you just say grandmothers? Uh, why aren't you naming them? Why are you speaking cryptically? And they said, well, because nobody's interested in funding grandmothers. They're not a sustainable investment. Uh, they're old women. And we thought, well, we'd be interested, very interested in supporting grandmothers. And at the same time, I was thinking, you know, if grandmothers in Canada knew what was happening, surely this would resonate for them the way it's resonated for my family. I had just had my second baby and I was watching my fierce feminist mother become jello whenever she was around her, grand- my, her grandchildren, my two, my two babies. And, uh, and I thought, well, if this is grandmotherhood, which I never understood could reduce I mean, to to such joy and love, well, (laughs) elevate them them to such joy and love, then maybe other grandmothers in Canada would respond. And 10 years later, there are uh, 10,000 grandmothers in Canada and 240 groups across the country and nine groups in Australia and a group in the UK and soon, I hope, uh, groups in the United States. So it's been quite a journey.
0: Wow. And that's taken you into the work that you're doing now um yes with with the podcast and I know there's more it's it's Mm -hmm. really interesting I'd love to know a bit about um what 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 you've learned through you know what you've learned through the process of starting the grandmother's work because to me it's you know I I did a book about grandmother's stories a number of years ago now and then it's really interesting to me the way you've you've um utilized that both in the work of the foundation but now Sort of stepped into more work around it yourself.
2: So, I'd love to hear well, what you're
1: learning. Sure. That. Um, well, the the truth is that in all of the work that I've done in my adult life around women's rights, one of the things that has been so powerful and such a powerful lesson and, and guide through my life has been the the stories that women tell the experiences that they've had Mm -hmm. and one of the frustrations that i've experienced in my professional life and my personal life around it is that these stories are always seen as sort of anecdotal they're you know in a report they're the text box on the side in the magazine they're sort of the pull quotes on the side they're never considered expertise Mm -hmm. and and that has been a deep frustration for me because I think that relegating women's lived experiences and the expertise that they build around whatever challenges they're overcoming and dealing with um, is, a, is a huge loss to humanity and certainly a loss to the understanding of how we create social change and social justice work. So I've always been deeply interested in how do you move the narrative the story of so many women around the world who are who are making having a tremendous impact both in their own lives their families and at the community and even the national level how do you move those stories from uh sort of parables or color or um the warm human face of of an issue into the very center of what we need to understand and what we need to Attention to and so the work with grandmothers uh, really really put that into very stark relief because grandmothers had grandmothers I was privileged to know and work with in sub-Saharan Africa uh, were were experiencing triple jeopardy in a sense it was their age and it was many of them are living with HIV themselves and. Was their status in society as women, older women, um, that had relegated them to the margins, not just of existence, but uh, of the understanding within the AIDS pandemic of the critical role that they were playing to turn things around, keep their families together, uh, be the sort of first responders of the front lines of the of the AIDS pandemic, and they were they were doing it in the midst of all of the grief of losing their adult children, and and still showing up and stepping up, and yet no one was talking about them at the very uh, heart of the response. So that was deeply frustrating. And then on the other side of the equation, working with Canadian grandmothers, uh, I was just astonished at the way Canadian grandmothers, and now Australian and some American and, and British, grandmothers were coming together in common cause. Some of them knew each other already, but many of them did not. And they embraced the ethos, the sort of uh, approach and philosophy of of our foundation, which is fundamentally that we are not the experts on what needs to be done; mm-hmm. that people living at the in, at community level are the experts on what needs to be done and how to do it. They simply need the support, the financial resources, to mm-hmm. do so. And that meant no pen paling because the African grandmothers have a lot of work to do and paper and pencils are precious for grandchildren to go to school. And no adopt a granny because grandmothers are dignified, uh, sophisticated individuals, peers to Canadian grandmothers or to grandmothers around the world, not beneficiaries, not victims, but the agents of their own destiny and their own uh, change that has to come about. And, And also no sort of adopting my project in Africa because there are simply too many communities, too many grandmothers and uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 million orphaned children. And so there are, there are not enough of us to take on one project at a time. And that's not really how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so doing away with all the sense of sort of colonial sense of ownership or of entitlement or developing, getting the satisfaction of those individual relationships. And yet without all of that, Gratification that has become so common to philanthropy and to giving—buying mm-hmm. uh, buying a goat, having a picture of a child on your fridge—all of those things that stimulate our empathy, compassion, and uh, sense of humanity, and wanting to participate in making the world a better place—we did away with all of that. We we didn't subscribe to it, and I wasn't sure that the grandmothers uh, here around the world, would, that that would resonate for them or that there would be enough motivation. But you know what was so interesting, Marianne, was that grandmothers, I've learned so much that grandmothers all over the world had also experienced a sense of marginalization, had also experienced transitioning into a moment in their lives where they weren't at the center of the narrative, they weren't always heated. Their voices weren't listened to in the same way as they once might have been used to. And so it wasn't a stretch for them when we said to them, you know, these grandmothers are independent individuals, dignified individuals who have their own minds, their own thoughts, their own ideas and expertise about what needs to happen. And they're the ones who are living it and they don't need you to save them. Uh, and they don't, and and because you have the resources, or you can raise the resources, doesn't mean that you actually have the answers. It's only they do, and mm-hmm. because I think grandmothers here had the experience of, you know, being condescended to or seen as granny, not as an elder stateswoman in their own right, uh, in their own communities. I think they really understood immediately that that was right, mm-hmm. and they came together in groups all over, all over the country, and. And now around the world, and they do all sorts of fundraisers there are, and they raise a lot of awareness. They go into high schools and universities and speak to young people about AIDS in Africa and what's happening with the grandmothers and their orphaned grandchildren. And they talk about HIV and living positively. And they do Scrabble tournaments where they raise $100,000 in one night getting community and friends to sponsor them. And there's a group of uh, grandmothers in their 70s in Victoria, British Columbia, and Western Canada, who do a 75-kilometer bike-a-thon and get people to sponsor them and raise tens of thousands of dollars. So every year they raise uh, in excess of $2 million, and all of those funds go directly to uh, the community-based organizations run by and for grandmothers and the children in their care. I've just learned an enormous amount mountain. And I I really feel that uh, older women and grandmothers, in particular, we could talk about why later, but uh, older women have, have so much to contribute and are still making such a vital contribution. And although I think many, many, many of us recognize that in our own lives, in our own relationships with our grandmothers, I think that, you know, partly it's patriarchy and Partly it's the sort of cult of the youth and youth as being the most vibrant and important thing in in, in the world these days. But I think that we miss uh, a, a really critical part of, uh, of our world and our humanity when we don't recognize how much grandmothers have to contribute to, uh, to the project of making the world a better place and contributing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I agree with yeah. that. So much. <laughs> <laughs> the other is
2: here
0: as well welcome the oh hi hi
2: <laughs> Lovely sorry to i jumped you. in uh, jumped in a bit late <laughs> no. hi no Lana. how's everything Hello. <laughs> wonderful thank <laughs> you yeah nice meeting you you too okay. we just had we just um, had a yeah, we just had a know, grandmother's gathering you seriously oh thank you, no, you go going? ahead go ahead I was
1: just going to say, Ziana, that we just um, we just had a grandmothers' gathering in in Tanzania in Arusha, with uh, two hundred and fifty Tanzanian grandmothers from oh, all wow. over the country. They marched down the street of Arusha. They held, mm-hmm. held two days. When was it? Uh, it was the last couple of days of February and and the first of March. And they held uh, three days of workshops that they ran for each other. Mm-hmm. Everything from how to disclose. Uh, HIV status to your grandchild, how to raise HIV positive grandchildren, human mm. rights of grandmothers, property rights, health access to healthcare, mm. um, and uh, any a whole huge range of issues that we that they're all dealing with around HIV and AIDS and their families and uh, birthing attendance and. Uh, there were a couple of organizations that hosted it, and all of the organizations came together. There's um, the organization, Kamara Peers, and Wado with the Maasai Women's Project, and they, and the community-based organizations were actually the organizing committee of the gathering, and we just worked with them to make the logistics happen and get out of their way so that they could hold all these workshops. And then they came, they came up with, as all the national-level gatherings do, they came up with a statement which was really their program for action, their agenda for what for the issues that they want to advance for grandmothers' human rights in Tanzania in the context of HIV and AIDS. It was really glorious. It was just triumphant. They were wonderful.
2: No, oh, we had We mm-hmm. had met earlier. I would have definitely love to be there. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, it is true what you're saying, it's especially in an African culture. Once you're a grandmother and you reach a, a certain age, your your voice is hardly listened to. And, you know, they, my grandmothers are mostly considered very fragile, unproductive, and and so on so i was just about to ask you um so how has this been received now that you've done it in tanzania how has the journey been um
1: uh, it's it's really been inspiring and remarkable the the our foundation doesn't run its own programs uh it's we just don't think that that is the way forward uh as as i was saying to marianne the, the response to AIDS, as you know well, and their home-based care workers, which is sort of the frontline healthcare uh, for people living at the community level around HIV and AIDS so often, and the grandmothers are the caregivers, and as they call themselves now, the guardians of the future. They're the ones raising future generations. And... What we found was that grandmothers were coming together in groups all over sub-Saharan Africa just organically to support one another in the terrible grief that they were experiencing, losing their adult children to AIDS, but also with all of the challenges that that brought around suddenly having, you know, two-year-olds, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and 20-year-olds living under your roof, all of your grandchildren from your your children. And they came together in groups and then supported by community-based organizations started to Run income generating projects, early childhood education projects, parenting workshops. Uh, Some of them are now sitting on land rights councils and child protection councils at the local level and really breaking through stigma around HIV, talking to their, learning how to talk to their. Uh, teenage grandchildren or adolescent grandchildren about sexuality and HIV and protection and dealing with adherence issues and taking the antiretroviral drugs for HIV and AIDS. So grandmothers have really become a force uh, that has been unleashed. It's just quietly because the world isn't paying enough attention. And so what the foundation has done is ensured that with support from the Grandmothers to Grandmothers campaign in Canada, Australia, uh, the UK, and now the US, that sustained funding has gone to these organizations so that the grandmothers could move from the urgent early grief-stricken moments of survival and trying to keep things together uh, to come together in groups and support groups create that base of support the ability to talk about what they've been through break through the stigma deal with the grief and then start to thrive you know start to generate income get the children back into school, create some stability within their families, stitch the fabric of the family back together and of the community and now we see that 10 years on the grandmothers in the 15 countries in sub saharan Africa where we are supporting this work are beginning to mobilize around their human rights. It's almost as if, Zayara, that they have said, we've done as much and are doing as much as we can do but the world and our own governments have to meet us halfway. There are things that they cannot change, you know, property Absolutely. laws and access to healthcare, all of the issues, and they can't resolve all of that. But now it's not like all of their needs are, have been met. There's still not enough food on the table. There's, not all of them can have all of their grandchildren in school. Uh, not all of them have adequate shelter for their families. But even with a modicum of sustained support over time, they 've both they continue to say, stay in everything day to day, but they 've started to look outward. What about the other grandmothers who don 't have community organizations supporting them? What about what our local uh, our local government and our national government can and should be doing to support the grandmothers who are raising the future of, of their countries and uh, it 's very powerful we 've had national gatherings in Uganda, South Africa, where 2,000 South African grandmothers marched to the steps of the AIDS conference, which was about to happen in Durban uh, last year, and then now in Tanzania. And And we had a a gathering in Swaziland in 2010, where we brought 500 grandmothers from 42 organizations in 11 countries to Swaziland and did a kind of regional grandmothers gathering. Because the truth is the grandmothers, even as you know, even within one country, don't have the time, the wherewithal, or the resources to meet one another, even to know that they exist in other organizations across the country. So it's a very exciting and dynamic moment when they all come together and recognize each other in common cause and in compassion and in shared struggles and triumphs over adversity.
0: It sounds like um, amazing work. And I, I'm interested in how the podcast, Marilena, <laughs> how it's grown out of that work. It sounds like it's grown out of it to some extent. Um, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's a
1: natural... It's a bizarre and natural evolution. <laughs> We're okay with that.
2: <laughs> okay,
1: good. <laughs> that's good. A little bit of bizarre. Never heard anyone. Exactly. Um, well, that's that's a personal project,
2: actually. Right. Yes. Yeah.
1: Emanating from the work, obviously, that courses through my veins, but uh, but part of it, in a, in a sense, which is that I had occasion recently to be uh, have some prolonged sleepless nights with a sick child and I couldn't sleep. And a friend of mine said, you know, you should be listening to podcasts because I was listening to the repeat of the news over and over at three in the morning and uh, tearing my hair. so I started, I never thought of listening to podcasts. I just have, I don't have a lot of time. So I started looking into it and I found that there was this quite extraordinary universe out there of, uh, really interesting people who were speaking to one another and, and a sort of unregulated universe, a universe where the limit was the limit of your imagination, your interests, your ideas. And so I was very interested by some of the, some of the radical conversations that were happening that you don't hear on main, in mainstream media anymore and some of the deep thinking. But when I started looking through the podcasts, first I found all the podcasts for women, which were quite mainstream. So it was all about being healthy, taking care of yourself, being young. That seems to be very important. Being attractive, uh, being financially secure. And that seemed... Uh, that's all okay. It's part of our world. But um, but I was a little frustrated by it because it's so pervasive. Um, lovely to hear so many women's voices and so many perspectives out there. But I was really looking for uh, for women's rights perspectives, for feminist perspectives, for progressive perspectives, um, and voices that are not heard so often and not parroting the sort of mainstream concerns of women or the concerns that are constructed as, as our concerns by the mainstream media and particu- I was particularly surprised that there were so few uh, podcasts by and for older women. Mm-hmm. I'm 52 so there were a lot of podcasts that were kind of you're not really marketable anymore but you can still be young so don't worry your life's not over because you can still be attractive. and if you do yoga you'll live longer and make sure to do this this and this. There were a lot of podcasts for women my age to make to sort of say don't worry you're still vital even if you're not uh even if you're not in that moment of youth that makes you particularly scintillating in our world but there was so little for older women and and i thought this is really nuts you know i have had the honor and the privilege to work with these remarkable determined tenacious uh indefatigable (laughs) african grandmothers for uh for a decade, and with these quite equally tenacious uh, Canadian grandmothers, and now beyond, and they have so much to offer. They're doing so much. They have a lifetime of ideas and work, and emotional wisdom. And we're just there. There doesn't seem to be enough out there for them, but also so little from them. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm not a grandmother yet, but but I can participate perhaps in the project of getting their voices out there, but more than their voices, uh, as I put it, is shining a spotlight on how vital they are, and not just in our own lives as beloved uh, grandmothers and sort of bearers of unconditional love for us as their grandchildren, but also as Really essential contributors in in our societies and in our communities and in our families. I really wanted to uh, get some of those voices and some of that experience and expertise out there. And it has been a it has been a pure joy um, finding grandmothers who are doing interesting and iconoclastic and courageous things, and grandmothers who are just making a tremendous difference in the life of their families and friends and communities. It's, it's really been uh, quite beautiful, really beautiful and lovely. And, uh, and I think, I hope, important conversation that, that people will find interesting and that will remind them that, uh, that grandmothers are, are still... Uh, tremendously important people. And one of the questions, I'll just say this, one of the questions that I ask a lot of the grandmothers that I interview at the end is, what do you think would happen if people listened to grandmothers? And Marianne, when I was looking at your book and your stories, I was thinking, we're we're so on the same wavelength here. What do they think will happen uh, if if the world actually listened to our grandmothers? And it really struck me that uh, there is the a commonality maybe even a universality in their answers regardless of where they come from that almost all of them say uh, there would be more common sense everybody would calm down uh, grandmothers are grandmothers are rational grandmothers have an extraordinary amount of common sense the world needs that you know the world needs to understand that we know the past We're informed by the past, we live in the present, and we understand that the future is not so far away and you have to do something about it right now. It was just beautiful. And I've learned, I thought I had learned already as much as a person can learn from spending a decade with grandmothers, (laughs) but I'm I'm learning much, much more through the podcast. It's just a lot of fun.
0: I um I just wanted to step in there and say that I was originally inspired in my book, which is called "Listening to Our Grandmothers," by um, a poem by Alice Walker, which is called "Calling the Grandmothers" or "Calling All Grandmothers." I think it's called. And she,
1: one of my favorite poems.
2: You
0: know the poem, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I don't have it off off by heart in my head, but I will say that you know she's talking about it's time for grandmothers to rise because we need this energy in the world right now, and I really felt that strongly and also in, when I was writing the book which is a few years ago now, it came out in 2013 but the thing that really stuck with me was this way in which we don't hear the voice of grandmas in which they tend to be sort of marginalized I think in pretty much every culture I've I know something about at least um it, it feels like a sort of a neglect of women's wisdom in general and I even felt yeah. like I even felt some of the women that I spoke to were sort of you know that little bit like um not wanting to sort of say you know that you know that the, they themselves were in any way wise and I think um there's something really interesting about that that discovery that I had which was that basically that the, the idea of women being wise is such a um Uh, a challenge to to our culture in a way that it's like better 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 sort of you know put that to the side and not take it too seriously and then we have all these ways in which we kind of you know dumb grandmothers down for want of a better word and i think yeah so it feels really critical to me it it feels like a, um, a big piece
1: absolutely i couldn't agree more and i always say to the canadian grandmothers they've heard me say this a million times that you know when when men get older, they become elder statesmen. And when grandmothers get older, they become grannies or nanas or nonas. <laughs> oh, wow. And it's not it's not always a promotion, you know. It's, no, it's not. It's, yeah. And and while there's sort of I, I love what the African grandmothers, the South African grandmothers said, you know, we are the guardians of the future. I love that. And I think that we experience that from our grandmothers, those of us, many of us who have really treasured our relationships with our grandmothers. And as you get older, appreciate that unconditional love that they bring. Uh, but at the same time, I think even those of us who had that experience, I certainly did with my grandmother, that even those of us who have it miss this other piece, which which is mm. to ask ourselves the question, why why don't we consider them elder states women? Mm-hmm. And mm. why, why don't they move into a place that is deeply respected and considered necessary? And I think it's an important question that we have to ask ourselves because when you see the kinds of things that grandmothers are doing when they come together, work on all sorts of causes. They're, they're really a for, they're a force to be reckoned with, a gentle force to be reckoned with, but a force nevertheless. And, and I think that... Uh, it's 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 a good challenge to give ourselves why don't we see it why don't we value it properly
2: mm. Mm. and sometimes i feel like you know our world leaders probably would have that common sense if they listened to their grandmothers seriously but <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> or, <laughs> if, or if
0: clever, our grandmothers, instead of <laughs> something else <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely and i mean i do think that there's such a thing as a generation gap i don't think that that's yeah. a made up concept i think but but what i've seen is that when grandmothers take the floor take the microphone decide mm. to use facebook decide to um, engage with technology mm. that you find that there are a lot of them out there who are uh, incredibly informed, incredibly engaged and, and interested too in bringing other grandmothers along with them, mm-hmm. that they really work in community and in, in a, in an organic way, but in a way that comes from their own learning in life, that that is ultimately what moves things forward and what matters most deeply Mm -hmm. Uh, and i love that i love the i love the feeling of continuity and i i have really treasured the the kinds of the challenges even as a feminist even as a women's rights advocate you know even immersing myself in in women's issues all my life uh I love it that I, I'm still challenged by what grandmothers are able to do and what they bring to the table, but also to to have that opportunity to look inward and think about some of my own stereotypes as well. And I think when I looked at podcasts about women, there's so much there that really betrays the fear of aging. And not just because of not having sexual power and beauty, uh, but also the understanding, the clear understanding that as you age, you do get re- relegated to the, to the margins. Mm-hmm. And you may not feel that. You may find ways to not uh, engage in that, in that cultural norm. But still, uh, it is very much what is accepted and, and what's normal for us. And I, I see a lot of very legitimate worry about that and but as a result this horrible trap of trying to um, cling to youth as the only way to be vital and important to people around you mm. so I'm, I'm hoping to let go of that myself at, at 52 <laughs> i decided to take a page out of the grandmother's book and just let it all go
0: <laughs> I found that I had to like challenge myself about things even you know when I did the book I was what mid thirties, um, but I had to challenge myself about stuff like hair dye and what sort of face creams I was willing to buy. But once I started thinking really deeply about these things, I was like, okay, so so dyeing hair is like because I've got a bit of grey, you know. If that is my reason, am I gonna do that? And you know, so far I've chosen not to. I did dye my hair when I was younger, and I guess that wasn't to do with grey. That was just you know, interested in being colourful. And I guess you can still be interested in being colourful later in life. But there's something for me about there's so many products out there. You know, there's so many face creams that are about youth. So many things are sold to us on like, this product will make you look younger. And I found myself developing this kind of, revulsion for anything that was trying to sell itself to me on the basis of you
1: that's right no it's right and the truth is is that even if you decide not to participate in it not to buy the the eye wrinkle creams and the neck wrinkle creams and the endless creams uh or to dye your hair you're still making a decision not to that's so still fig it still looms large in our landscape as women no matter what we do it's there and you can decide to eschew it you can decide to uh to refuse or to resist but you still have to engage with it even by resisting it and a lot of the grandmothers i talked to actually talk about that Uh, there was one grandmother who was telling me that a personally triumphant moment for her was when she she let her hair go gray and quite white and I know her, I've met her, it's absolutely beautiful. She has beautiful hair. And she was in uh, a drugstore and another woman came up to her and said, you know, that's natural, isn't it? And she said, oh yes, I don't dye my hair. I, I can't be bothered and I love it like this. And she bumped into the woman Two months later, she, she had gone from a brunette to being completely gray. <laughs> and, she said, and she said to her, oh, I feel so wonderful. I feel so liberated by this. And she just was having a complete renaissance of herself. And uh, this grandmother that I interviewed for the podcast said, you know, it was a really wonderful moment because I realized actually – even this makes a difference. Even just refusing to participate and being truly who I am and what I look like and taking pleasure in it uh, is, is having an impact on women around me. So it was, a, it was a very personal moment, but I thought, yes, and that has influenced me too.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It has ripple effects. Yeah,
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah.
2: I've been yeah.
0: taking pictures of myself and sharing them with, like, with my grey bits, although I only have a few bits, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I've been doing it deliberately, and I. But I, you're right, I do notice that I'm doing it. It is a thing that I'm doing deliberately to kind of like embrace the grey, you know?
1: Absolutely. And but, I think there's but, all sorts of strange things that we sort of, conceptions that we, or misconceptions that we have about grandmothers, because uh, so many of them are doing work where they have to talk about sex and yeah. sexuality. And, you know, some of them talk to me about how they have children who have grown up who are not heterosexual, and they've had to think that through and embrace a whole other world of possibilities. And they love their grandchildren and accept them completely. And others have told me about how they're doing education around HIV. And so they're talking about sex and sexuality and protection. And these are Often topics that grandmothers, and particularly the African grandmothers who are doing a lot of talking about it, say this is this is not how it used to be, and it's not something they ever thought they'd talk about. And I've spoken to grandmothers who talk about who are working on reproductive rights, fighting for reproductive rights in the states, who the United States, who talk about. Uh, talking about sex and sexuality and a right to bodily integrity for women, even though they themselves have moved beyond reproductive years, how important it is because they're the ones who remember what it was like when they didn't have those rights. So it's just, I think there's, there's a whole piece around grandmothers and things that we don't expect them to be talking about or thinking about because we have our own, uh, our own stereotypes, our own preconceived notions. And they're, they're just exploding them all over the place. If you don't have to look far to see it and to learn from it. Sorry, Zaida, you were just going to say something.
2: <laughs> I even lost—I lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, but uh, but uh, we we're talking about you know the the reproductive right and the, the the sex talk and so on. As it is, you know, as a Tanzanian culture, it's very hard for a woman to talk about it, anyways. So. <laughs> so when you at least have you know a group of women you know come together and talk about it that is a definitely you know opening up a new sort of it's 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 a new page to their lives and that's yeah. just just completely amazing you know because yes. other than that there is no platform where they can actually be heard I, I don't think think that they can go to the hospital and talk about it, you know, yes. or, yes. you know, they don't have the privilege, you know, to have probably, you know, a therapist who can sit them down and, and talk to them because I can imagine going through your, you know, your, your 40s and your 50s and as you approach 60s and 70s, there's a lot of changes in your body as well. I would equate that similar, almost similar to, you know, what you're going through, through your adolescent so and 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 that was hard enough you know yes. because you don't have yes. anyone to talk to so imagine as you grow older and then you have to go through all those emotions and you have no one to talk to So no one to um, talk to uh, yeah absolutely so i mean it's it, it's a great platform it's a great start you know and uh, yeah I, I really hope that it keeps up and we yeah. open up and we close this generation gap because that's one of the main things that that's there. And I, I don't think if it's going to end anytime soon. I mean, it's so much so that when you hear your grandmother is on Facebook or Instagram, you know, you hear comments such as, what is my grandmother doing on Instagram?
1: <laughs> um,
2: uh, she has yep. a life too. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, just just because she's 65 or she's 70 doesn't mean that she doesn't need to have a, a social channel. You know, she can still socialize. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Well, and I've spoken to yeah, so that has oh, to change.
1: It really does. And I and I and I think it yeah. is I think it's it is changing. I mean, one of the things slowly, slowly admittedly, but but one of the things that has really struck me um, Working alongside these community-based organizations that are that are doing programs and working with communities on HIV and AIDS is that um, it's been incredibly important to work with the grandmothers because they're raising the children now. That the grandmothers are engaged in that conversation because they're they're the parents now. And mm. one of the I, I remember in Tanzania I was. I was meeting with some Maasai women birthing attendants and uh, an old Maasai grandmother, she she must have been in her late 80s, was doing a workshop, was holding a workshop for all the other grandmothers about how to put a condom on properly. And partly for them, because it's wrong, of course, to assume that, all, that no grandmothers are sexually active, but also so that they could teach their grandchildren and talk about it and there was much merriment I mean this grandmother had one tooth in her head and she was laughing and I didn't understand the language of course but but you she you could tell that she was an imp just an imp. And she was making jokes and dancing around with uh, with this wooden phallus, which was her <laughs> prop to show how to put the condom <laughs> on properly. And all the grandmothers were just, they were crying, they were laughing so hard. They were just in hysterics. Partly they were mortified because it was, you could see it was a subject that they weren't yeah. used to talking about.
2: Very groups. uncomfortable. Mm. Very
1: uncomfortable. And at the same time, uh, one of the really poignant pieces about that is how many grandmothers uh, have spoken to us and we've had the privilege to hear their conversations about how no no matter how uncomfortable it is that they are not willing to as as some of them have said so beautifully they're not willing to raise another generation for the grave and they are so determined to make sure that this does not happen again that it doesn't strike their community the young people in the community their own grandchildren that their grandchildren will live healthy vibrant long uh, hopeful and and happy lives that they're actually diving in you know they they know that they have to be able to talk about it and in group after group from botswana to Zambia to Zimbabwe to Rwanda to Tanzania to Kenya there are Uganda there are grandmothers who are coming together in groups and talking about how about sexuality about sex about prevention because it has become a matter of life and death a matter of life and health and they just are not going to shy away from it I I have found it truly touching and often hilarious (laughs) (laughs) You know, they, they, I've seen grandmothers get quite a kick out of talking about it once they get past their own discomfort. And I have to say that for Canadian grandmothers, who are the ones that I'm closest to, um, they, they have learned an enormous amount from the African grandmothers about um, how to care for your family, your community, how to come together in community to break old traditions, breakthrough stigma, how to give voice to uh, to grief and to healing and to thinking in new ways at, at a time in your life where you didn't expect to be making new com- connections and friendships at a time in your life when you didn't expect to be. Uh, I, I hear it from the Canadian grandmothers and now the Australian grandmothers all the time that they they just have learned so much from the way that the African grandmothers have had to make seismic changes in order to get their families through uh, through the crisis it's really beautiful
0: I, I just like to ask one thing about that elena um like how does that learning take place because i i, I heard you saying earlier that you know it's not like an adopt a granny or a write a letter pen pile type of a model of fundraising mm-hmm. and i and i you know i've got deep respect for that because i think you know it made made a lot of sense to me what you said about that and i and i you know, it, it, it I feel it's right too, um, but I'm interested in like how how does that learning happen given that you're not creating those sort of um, theoretically personal relationships.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, in a couple of ways, Marianne. One one way is that the foundation. At the Foundation, we do a lot of talking about yeah. uh, about what community based organizations are doing, but you know we 're still speaking for them and, and we 're yeah. still speaking as the intermediary so that 's not very satisfying uh, we've We have worked hard to be in a position over the years to bring uh, African grandmothers. To mm-hmm. Canada to meet with Canadian grandmothers and we've done it very carefully, working closely with uh, the community based organizations that are our partners uh, to make sure that it 's the right time they i'm always completely blown away by the democracy within these communities and community based Excuse me these community based organizations where how they choose which grandmothers get to come and what they 're going to do when they get back to share their experiences with the community and so we make we make a concerted effort every year to bring grandmothers over so that the African grandmothers can speak for themselves in mm. their in their own words and we bring a there's always a program person from the uh, from the community-based organization that comes with them, that often often needs to translate for them, and that way the grandmother can can tell her story and talk about her own expertise in her own voice, in her own words, and there's no substitute for that. When there are grandmothers gatherings on the continent, um, then the Canadian grandmothers and Australian and now British grandmothers are and most recently in Tanzania, there was even one American grandmother, were invited to come as a delegation. And so they go through an equally democratic process here where they nominate each other and they make a commitment, the grandmothers who go over, um, they make a commitment to come back to their own country and to act as an ambassador for at least a year talking about the gathering, what they learned, the workshops, the substance, what it was like. They visit some of the community-based organizations only when these grassroots groups want visitors. We sure. never impose it. It has to be that it's okay with them, it's the right timing, it's the right moment. Um, but they're really, we make a variety of efforts uh, to ensure that there is, there that there, that there are moments where the African grandmothers are able to speak for themselves and that the Canadian grandmothers understand that, they have, uh, that they're bearing witness, that they're standing in solidarity, that it's not charity, that they're allies, and what that role really looks like and what it can be. And that's been very powerful. We actually, recently a colleague of mine, Joanna Henry, and I wrote, uh, well, she wrote the book. Uh, and I did some of it with her. Some of it, Monica. Of it, she did most of uh, most of the work. Uh, a book called "Powered by Love: A Grandmother's Movement to End AIDS in Africa" it came out in October of this last year. And "Powered by Love" was just another way to tell the story of the Canadian campaign, which is the Grandmother's Grandmother's campaign, which is now turned into a social movement in Canada. We didn't do that. Foundation, the grandmothers themselves turned it into a social movement, and what the African grandmothers were doing uh, in their communities and mobilizing around their rights. And we wrote the book very carefully so that the grandmothers themselves were telling the story of what had happened and what was happening now. So the book is filled with quotes from just a a uh, cacophony of voices of grandmothers. Uh, we interviewed hundreds in eight countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and then in Canada. And the story of what's happened in the solidarity movement is told through their own through their own voices, quotes from them. And that felt extremely important. So that that someone else wasn't telling their story yet again.
2: Mm. Mm. Mm.
0: Brilliant. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, uh, let's can you um let people who might be listening know how they would get hold of the book, and also I know your podcast isn't out yet, but when it when it's coming and where they might find it when it does
1: <laughs> sure, <laughs> that's kind of you uh well, powered by love, you can get in most countries on amazon um in uh in Australia, I believe you can't get it on Amazon. And then, if you want to get it, you, there's a uh, there's a website for the book mm-hmm. called Love dot com. And if you're interested in the podcast Grandmothers on the Move, the easiest way to find it when I first launch it, which should be, as I said, early May, uh, is through my website, which is. Just Landsberg lewis.com And Landsberg is with the, is spelled Land S Berg, B-E-R-G Lewis.com. And then you can, f- I'll, I'll have all the information there. And when it first launches, that's probably the easiest place to find it. Sure. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank
2: you. Okay. So Elena, um, how uh, do you take care of yourself? <laughs> What's your self care regime? You know, I was going to ask that question. Yeah. I did know, I did know, and I I prepared for it and came up with nothing. You came up with nothing.
1: No. <laughs> so what do I do to
2: take care of myself?
1: Such yes. a good question, and I have such a I have such an inadequate answer. Um, what do I do? Well, I have two children, uh, who are young teenagers, and. Uh, uh, two boys, wonderful egalitarian uh, feminist boys who care very much about equal rights and and equality, so that's lovely and uh, it's a huge part of taking care of myself to spend time with them and spend time with them engaged in uh, discussions about the world around us and and social justice issues. I I know that doesn't sound like self-care, but actually for me um, it's a It's a really important, a a big part of, uh, I think, and I certainly can't speak for anyone else, but for me in social justice work and in in work around women's rights, probably the biggest part of taking care of myself is to keep myself deeply connected to people around me, Mm -hmm. the people I work with, the people in my family, the people that I work to serve in the work that I do, um, that that connection is so life enhancing so vital to my own well being that mm. uh, that I actually invest a considerable amount of energy in thinking about it and working on it and there is a kind of vigilance to doing this work and thinking about what it means to be in the north, working with people in the South who have certainly experienced. Uh, enough colonialism and enough impositions to be constantly vigilant about where you're coming from, how you do this ethically, how you earn their trust, and what it takes to do that properly. Um, how to be a good ally and good and good supporter. And and actually, although it doesn't, it's not yoga, and it's not uh, it's not you know steam baths, but but it is a kind of inner sustenance Mm -hmm. if i can put it that way that that is deeply important and deeply gratifying i think it often sounds like it's just more work like being a workaholic you never stop thinking about it you never stop challenging yourself you never stop but but if it's the stuff of life if that's if that's what makes you tick then nurturing it tending it um thinking about it and and connecting with others so that you're sharing it and, and in a constant state of learning uh, is a is a very um, is I think I, I guess I'm making a bit of a, an argument for it, but it but I made the argument that it that it is it is an investment in your own health, in mm-hmm. your own in your own well-being, in the work you've chosen to do, in the way you've chosen to walk through the world. And that is probably, if I'm thinking about it seriously, that that's probably the best way in which I take care of myself. Now, the other more traditional ways, uh, not so great. I, I have to admit, I don't have a lot of time out or a lot of free time. Um, but, you know, spending time with loved ones and uh, I love to read with a passion. So um, reading reading at night is sort of, clandestine stolen moments when I know I should send that one more email but I I don't <laughs> and I I let myself read fervently the <laughs> couple of chapters of a really great fantasy book um that uh, that's also a way of of kind of delicious escapism mm. that, that really lets me take care of my own inner life uh, in a way that's that I really love and, and have decided I will not feel guilty about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I think those are, those are the primary ways. Now, periodically I will get very serious about what I know counts as self-care mm-hmm. and I will do the odd thing. I, for a while I I had a stint doing hot yoga and I loved it, um, but I I realized that the cost of the babysitters at that time was was going to Caused me more stress that your hot yoga was going to bankrupt me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that did not feel like self care. And I thought, you know, people are thinking about single mothers when they're talking about this stuff. <laughs> so, I thought, I'm not equations. If I'm here for another half hour, then I, can I afford the babies that are working? If I do three classes a week, that's going to kill me. But some of those some of those self care things are not. And you know, I don't dye my hair, so that's uh, that that kind of thing I, I don't care because I don't do that kind of self care. But I do um, I do pay attention as I get older to uh, and I I am I am now sort of dealing with the the quite hidden subject of menopause. Um, I do pay more attention to, you know, silly little things that I think other healthier people have probably paid attention to their whole lives, you know, staying hydrated. seems like such a small thing, but I never thought about it as a younger woman. And now uh, it's an incredibly important part of being well and taking care of myself is that I do actually pay more attention to what I'm putting into my body and, uh, and what i 'm and cooking more, I love cooking so that 's that 's something else I do, which is almost meditative is cooking and uh, and one other totally mortifying uh, mortifying reveal, which silly as hell, but you know if you 're if you 're as earnest a person as I tend to be <laughs> there 's got to be something you do that 's redemptive, um, which is that for that i I love those uh ridiculous adult coloring books oh, yeah. and i went to, i went to art school for a, a misguided millisecond in in high school i have no talent whatsoever but but i love them and i read a very interesting article that said that um those coloring why do adults love these these intricate annoying uh cro- they're almost like crossword puzzles these coloring books Ooh. uh Why do adults love them so much? Why is it such all the rage? And it turns out that when you're doing them seriously and quietly, that your brain goes into a state that really approximates meditation. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I've never been able to turn the volume down in my head low enough to meditate for more than, you know, three seconds. Mm -hmm. But but that actually does take me away from it all. And uh, so it feels totally silly, but actually... Um, Now and then when I'm feeling too frazzled, too stretched, uh, I do consider that a a part of self-care. Just a moment where you're doing something completely frivolous that doesn't have to achieve anything in particular, but that, uh, that just feels indulgent. Mm. I love
0: that Alana. And I, I just wanted to say one thing because about your, about the first thing you spoke about and the, you know your vigilance for your work you were talking about um doing doing work and what i heard anyway was, was your approach to your work being very um in line with your values and integrated into your values and that sort of piece about connection with the people around you feeling like self-care and it makes me think just of someone we had on the show previously um Alessandra Pigney's written a book about burnout amongst aid workers and she talks about how burnout isn't just about what you don't do or the you know it's not even just about the stress or the busyness it's actually about um when you're out of line with your values you know when what you're being asked to do or what you're doing is um, you know, incongruent with what you believe you're there for, what you, what you want to be doing in the world. So I think it really resonated with me when you said that actually doing what you really want to be doing in the world in a way that, you know, aligns with your values about that, it actually feels like care because in, in that sense it is, you know. And a lot yeah. of people aren't doing that, you know, and that's one of the, of the problems we have, like, in the world more, more widely is that so much of what we call work, asks us to be out of line with our values. You I
1: know? think that's, that's really true, Marianne. I think that's really true. And I think that, you know, I have a lot of women who come through my office who work in the private sector, mm. who say, you know, I want to do something, I want to make a contribution, and they're talking about giving back, and it's all good. But, but they're living with uh, a frustration or a sense of not just not doing enough, but not being entirely fulfilled.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, their lifestyle and their their status make it almost impossible to make a different choice at the point in life when they when they talk to me, but I have to say whenever I talk to them i uh, i 'm quite aware of the trade offs i 've made in life the u n certainly gives you a quite privileged and comfortable lifestyle before that, I was a union side labor lawyer and doing some human rights law. And that would have also given me a quite privileged uh, and comfortable life. And in no way to complain about where I sit now, which is also extraordinarily privileged to be paid well to do the work that I care about most. Um, But still in all, it's, it's not as comfortable as the women who I see have made other choices. But unlike them, I never go to bed wondering what i'm here for and why i'm doing what i'm doing and i never make up wake up in the morning not feeling a sense of purpose and that that does not seem like a, a trade-off at all to me that's that's infinitely precious mm. uh, and and that to me is it's as much as i understand what self-care really means because i admit i'm I'm not great at this on this subject, but, but I do, I do feel that in that sense, you know, there is a sense of, there is a, a feeling of wellness fundamentally in my being, yeah. uh, working on women's rights and social justice. And in this context, HIV and AIDS in Africa in the role that I feel is the right role to be playing, which yeah. is not as the expert, not as the implementer, not as the, uh, not as a funder with my own ideas about what should be done, but in a principled way that is uh, founded in my own values and ideological beliefs and and that really is uh, i think for me um, for me it's the definition of self care
2: mm-hmm.
1: it might be for someone else it may it, it it may be a very convenient excuse to never stop working, but I accept that. <laughs> I accept accept that I may have found a way to justify unjust preoccupation. I can hear the people I know in my head saying,
2: oh, yeah. And I believe
0: it. I'm not going to do that to you right
1: now. That's very charitable. But you can hear that I have, at least I have conviction. I've convinced myself, if not anyone else. That's
0: right. So thank you so much for being yeah. with us this evening, and it's been a really interesting conversation. I certainly learned that
1: absolutely. And well, yeah. thank you both so much. I've, thank I've, you I've so really much. Enjoyed listening to to all of your conversations. You've been a a good a good inspiration and guide for me as I embark on this project. So oh well, we you.
0: look forward to you to, to hearing your podcast when it comes out next
2: month. So thank you. you. Can send me little critiques <laughs> when you got a yeah. moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and just, Next time, when you, when you are in Tanzania, please do, do let me know. I would really love to be part, part of that and just, uh, you know, and, and see, seeing it and just experience it as well. Will
1: do. I look forward to it. Yeah.
0: And our theme tune, Over and Over, was written and performed by Eleanor Brown, who you can find at eleanorbrownmusic.com.